Greg McEwen is best known for his New York Times best-selling book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. We discuss why focus is such an essential part of success and why everyone from Bill Gates to Warren Buffett cite it as being their reason for their success, how to live your life by design and not by default, the importance of saying no, why we find it so difficult to say no and how to say no, how to deal with the abundance of choices we're forced to make every single day, journaling, gratitude, and how success can be its own trap. We also talked about the phenomenal success of his book and how that's been his own trap for him. Enjoy the chat. Greg McEwen, welcome to Dot Innovate. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm a a huge fan of your work. I just tore through essentialism the first time that I got it. It, it, I believe that books, it came to me in a really difficult part of my life. um, And it came to me just at the right time. And I believe that books do that. They come to you at a particular time in your life. Do Do you also believe a similar sort of thing? I believe that books have a life of their own and uh, and they're not entirely dead things. And so it's uh, it's 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 exciting to me to to hear that this uh, that essentialism played a, a small role in, uh, in, in an important moment in your life. So I'm well, grateful about that. No, it, it really did. So uh, thank you very much for for writing it. But take us back to the beginning of your career. As I understand it, you trained to be a lawyer. And if not for a random trip to America where you discovered the power of choice, you probably never would have written the book that ended up changing the lives of millions of other people. How did Greg McEwen become an essentialist? I was, uh, I was on a, um, a trip to the United States and somebody said in passing, look, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should help us with this committee you know, meeting. And, and I never helped them with that, as it turns out. But I was really struck by the question because so often in life, we know logically we could make a different choice, that we could make a different, pursue a different strategy, go in a different direction. But emotionally, we don't always feel that. And so it, that question suddenly gave me emotional permission to think about doing something different. And hmm. so I left that office and brainstormed for 20 minutes. Uh, what would you do? You know, not if you, if you could do anything, but not everything. If you were free from the 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 burden of past decisions and and i brainstormed and when i looked at the answer i'd come up with i realized that um, studying law was uh, was not on my list which is mm. because i was studying law in england and uh, and and you know what do you do and the permission was there and it was one of these moments where um, there were lots of answers um lots of questions rather that, d- that didn't have answers to them at that point but I could never put the genie back in the bottle. It was the, the, the opportunity to do something different to, to, you know, as vague as it sounds to teach and to write, to spend my life teaching and writing, particularly in the field of, uh, of leadership and strategy and, and so on. It was just so compelling to me. And I already hmm. had that passion and interest, but I was trying to straddle it. I was trying to do law plus, you know, I, uh, I wasn't sleeping very much at the time. I was, I was sort of doing research uh, for my own interests through the night and I'd be doing law through the day and it just wasn't it just was uh, so such a liberating thing to realize you don't have to do 
what you thought you have to do. Hmm. And, uh, and, and it was the, in, in that is some seeds of what, um, of the, of the very subject of essentialism. Uh, but, uh, I remember calling my father, uh, from, from the U S and saying, you know, thinking about quitting law school and, um, I mean, he, he, he didn't quite say this, these weren't the words, but the spirit of what he said was do what's essential and, uh, and, and, uh, everything will work out. I think one of the phrases he used, there was a couple he said, well, one he said was, was, uh, you know, from Hamlet, he said, to thine own self be true. And, uh, and then, and then he followed it up with this, this gem, which was, uh, which is, you know, choose what is right and let the consequences follow. And, uh, and, and, and so both in that mm. story uh, I mean, that's, that is the beginning of a journey, a 20 year journey that leads now to this conversation. But there's also in that story, a, the a seed of a, a key, a very important key to break mm. through to the next level at any point in our lives or careers. Really interesting. If I told my dad that I was going to quit my law degree to, to do something uh, else creative, he probably wouldn't have said something as eloquent as your dad. Well, it probably would have been eloquent, but it probably would have had a couple of expletives <laughs> in it as well. Uh, so really, really interesting. So your dad sort of put you on, on this path. Really, really quite fascinating. Well, well he, 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 in, in fairness, he was the one that had said many times that, that going to law school would be a good idea. Mm. Um, you know, so keep your options open had been the sort of message. But in this moment, I think he could sense that it wasn't, it sounds, it could sound, and in fact, it could be for someone a frivolous thing, couldn't mm. be passing away something important like mm -hmm. that. And, and, and so you have to have discernment in these moments. But it was for real for me. It, was, uh, it, wasn't, a, it wasn't frivolous. It was a sense of real mission mm. that there's a different life, there's a different path. And and uh, and it has just been such such a great path uh, since then. And what a, what a you know just to be able to spend your life pursuing what you feel is uh, is, is your essential mission in life sure. is, uh, is this is this yeah. is this is pivotal stuff. Very few people find that discover that. Um, did you know that you were writing something that would ultimately turn out to be as big as it eventually became? Well, no, I don't think that you can ever really, you know, know that or or, or feel that going into it. I mean, I, I I'm I just am grateful to have seen that it's had the power of relevancy, and and that's what I think. It, 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 I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure that I wrote a great book, but I think it address addresses a great concern. Yeah, and so when people feel busy but not productive repeatedly when they feel stretched too thin at work or at home continually when they feel like their day is is it's endlessly being hijacked by other people's agenda sure when when this is this is becomes common for someone or, or regular for somebody yeah essentialism sits there trying to uh, give give a, um, a a positive way forward uh, and an alternative way of doing life and so and so I think that because, in a sense, I've just been really lucky because I think this is this is one of the real challenges of our times. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, better than better than the better than some challenges you could be dealing with. I, I prefer to be dealing with these challenges than some past generations have, have dealt with. But nevertheless, <laughs> it's still a challenge. Murder, um, incest, or disease, famine, all the rest of it. Uh, yeah. 
pretty pretty true and i think you're right i think this book becomes more and more important as time moves on because things aren't slowing down you know the demands in our on our time are even greater now than they have been in the past and you 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 you, you can't see a time where that where things are going to be slower than what they are now so i think it's going to become even more important living an essentialist life in fact cal newport has a um a great new book on that digital Minimalism. Are you are you a fan of his work as well? Have you have you followed his work? Yes, I I, I enjoy that work. If I'm not mistaken, he sent me a, a copy of that advanced copy, and and mm. I think I, I I'm pretty sure I endorsed that book uh, because I just thought I thought it was so. Uh, I enjoyed thoroughly reading it, and uh, and I started immediately applying ideas uh, that were that were in it as well. I, I think that we're, I think Cal and I and others are trying to uh, 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 communicating about similar challenges um and and you know a trust a, a searching for our own path and hopefully in a way that's 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 helpful uh for for other people i mean i mean one of the things he suggests that i that i'm uh, also advocate is just to just remove all the digital clutter uh that you possibly can and there's a there's, there's a few really simple things and that they're, they're not they're not rocket science things but but unless someone's done them they're going to be reaping a, mm-hmm. a high cost i mean just to take off every app off your phone everything hmm. and then to put them back one by one based upon them actually helping you to fulfill your own mission your own sense of what matters i mean hmm. that alone is a huge advantage sure. you, you just you just reclaim your phone i mean sure. our, our phones make poor poor masters uh, good servants, but poor masters, and and that's one thing you can do. A second thing, and I won't give a good long list, but but it just to 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 certainly get rid of all notifications, just eliminate all of it. It's not that hard. It takes probably twenty minutes to do it, and you you reclaim that much time in the first day. Uh, you get the reward for for having done it. I mean, there's just so much stuff that comes in as notifications mm-hmm. and adds to our sense of being uh, endlessly interrupted. Sure breaking news everything's breaking news now sure. right and, and, and it, when you get seven. when you click on it and when you click on it and go to the news what you find is it is often somebody is uh, someone has tweeted something about someone and then they tweeted <laughs> back and that and now the people in the article are t- telling you about this exchange sure. i mean this this used to be called gossip right sure. uh, we, we don't need to read every article about who's tweeting who sure. we can sure. get our work done and feel that satisfaction really really interesting i i love his concept as well i mean we won't go through everything that he's that he's written we'll have to get him on the show but i love his concept as well of time blocking so you know focusing on one particular activity for sort of 90 minutes getting rid of your phone or any other beeps or distractions and you know using that time almost getting to us into a state of flow and when you when you are able to get into a state of flow miracles happen you're you're in terms of your own productivity and and, and output um but uh we we digress you you write that when you surrender your ability to choose someone or something else would choose for you explain that a little bit well it's just not neutral um if if you if you don't if you don't make the well, I mean, it had, well, it's very sad to put that into perspective for me. I got an email from uh, from my colleague at the time that said Friday between one and two would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby. 
And uh, I mean, she was expecting otherwise. That's an even stranger. <laughs> but uh, but sure enough, Thursday night we go into the hospital. Our daughter's born in the early hours, and so there, Friday morning, we're you know really just in recovery. Everyone's well, but um, but of course it's you know you're going to be exhausted. So and and instead of just being focused on that pristine, uniquely important, vital moment i'm feeling torn i'm feeling distracted i'm feeling like how can i do both how can i keep you know work happy make progress there keep my wife happy daughter happy and i think to myself oh i can do it all and so i i go to the meeting and um and look i mean it's obvious in hindsight it's 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 obvious to anybody hearing the story it's like yeah you you made a fool's bargain um, you you violated something more important, something less important. And what I learned from that lesson was was what I learned was simple, which is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Hmm. And it's this is this is it's not neutral. Every time you say yes to something, you are saying no to something else. Sure. The 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 the, the great truth of I think of, of our lives is trade-offs. When you, when, when you, when I, well, I'm not advocating an essential thing, by the way, that we should say no to everything and everyone without thinking about right. it. That, that's, that's, I didn't write a book called Noism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am advocating that, that every time we say, we, we say yes to something that's averagely important or totally not important, we are, saying no to something essential. And so that's the trade-off that I'm at. I'm, I'm saying consciously, deliberately, intentionally choose what is most important so that the least important things get addressed last or not at all. And, and by, be, by being conscious about this, we can start to, uh, to design our lives around the things that matter most instead of allowing the things that matter least to guide our lives by default. Well, let's talk a little bit about saying no, because it's actually, but it's really hard to say no. It's hard to turn down an invitation from a colleague or a boss or a friend because you don't want to disappoint them. You say that sort of navigating those sorts of moments with grace and courage is sort of a really important skill to master for an essentialist. Why is it so hard to say no? Well, first, the two reasons. One, because we're novices at it. We've done it so... We, this kind of conscious saying no is something we have not been... We have not practiced. And so it's like any leadership competency or any competency at all, mm-hmm. you must develop it. And because the word no is so short and it sounds so simple, I think people think, well, it might be simple. Sure. But actually, you have to learn how to do it. And so competency, the, the, the absence of competency is what makes it hard. The second thing, and it's related to the first, is that this inherent fear that it will damage relationships. And mm. so if you, if you're, if, of course, if you worry, if you don't want to damage relationships and you imagine well, saying no is going to do it, you just won't do it. And that's its cycle because you're not going to practice it. You're not going to try it. You're going to therefore just fear it. And so we just are a lot. Let me offer this um, additional explanation. I think that in lots of people listening to this, will have, without knowing it, a, a 
limited mindset about saying no. That, that without them knowing inside their minds, they have this continuum. And at the one end of the continuum is the polite yes. And at the other end of the continuum is the rude no. Sure. And, and so, nothing in between. And, and, and Yeah, well, exactly. Nothing in between. And, and even if there's something in between, even then what the idea is, is that you anything less than a polite yes is a step towards a rude no. And of course, as we've already talked about, this concern that that would damage relationships, that that could be career limiting and so on. And, and, and what I've learned, what I think essentialists discover is that there's a third alternative, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that it's not a continuum. It's a it's a pyramid, right? It's a triangle. And at the, at the apex is negotiation. And so as in every interaction we have, there's the yes, the polite yes, yes, the rude no, but then there's this rich other area of negotiation. And once you sort of remember that, when the next request comes in, you, you, you can think about well, what's, the, what's the way to negotiate in this situation? What's the appropriate way? And, and what you want to be doing over time is building enough trust and psychological safety in your relationships that you mm-hmm. can have this negotiated conversation become mm-hmm. the norm, not the exception. Give uh, us an I, example I, of of a polite no or a no, uh, or or a no that kind of softens the blow a little bit. Well, I, I will get to that. Just one sec. Yes. Okay. But but let me let me share something that I, I I haven't normally shared. But with the same with the same colleague that sent me that email, there was another time that they asked me to come to an event on a Sunday, which is a day I've like you know protected my whole life from from any work. Uh, commitment and and so it, you know I felt some pressure but I in that case came to a conclusion and just said look I, I just I'm just not going to be able to do it that's just you know I just need I want to be with family I want to be I want to be at church I want to do and they came back to me and they said oh yeah yeah you've made a good choice that's great and here's what I learned by that when I when I and why I'm sharing is that it's the same interaction it's the same dynamic but suddenly I was willing to negotiate I was willing to push back and I discovered a different outcome. And I, I just wonder how often our relationships might get, you know, might, there might be some growing pains, but there might actually be a better, healthier sure. relationship just out of reach. But we don't discover it because we just keep on saying yes and mm. resenting it afterwards. Mm. So, so if we want to have a great relationship with anyone, we must get out of this. It's either a polite yes or rude no thinking. That's sure. so limited and get into the negotiation really really interesting but it, but it's hard because we do want it all you know we want everything we want to be a great husband and father and brother and we want to go to the gym five times a week and keep up with current affairs and we want to uh you know eat healthy and sort of go on holidays we want everything um but it's not possible <laughs> i mean we there, there are trade-offs that we need to make um so how do, how do people negotiate that in a world that sort of gives us this abundant choice? How do we how do we negotiate the things that we want to do, but ultimately we can't do everything? Well, I just I mean, what comes to mind when you say that is is the importance of of getting clear about about the the strategy for your own like what you're going to go after, hmm. and to not get tempted by everything else that someone else is doing that is appealing. Hmm. Um, I mean, just in the last 
few weeks, I, I've had a, a few conversations with people about real estate and how important it is to invest in real estate. And, 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 and I sensed myself being pulled into this of, oh my goodness, yes, that's such a, that's, of course that's right. And I've known that for all this time and we, I should just, we should expand. And then, and then I go, yeah, but I don't think that's actually what I want to do. <laughs> you know, I don't actually think I want to have X number of rentals and have to deal with those sure. rentals or deal with people managing those rentals or like, I actually think the total cost of ownership of that is not what is being, um, not exactly sold. I don't mean it's just been, this has been casual conversation, but, but often people are selling something, even if they're not in a, in a formal sales role. And so just recognizing that and going, that can be great for somebody else, but it's not for me. Hmm. You know, somebody, somebody else, oh, skiing, you go skiing. I go skiing every year. I, we get to have family together. We do this. And you think, oh, that sounds like a terrific idea. And then you say, hmm. no, I don't actually want to do <laughs> that. isn't the thing that for me, sure. I like. I like tennis and I think tennis is a great game for my family and I to play. And I play with my, one of my daughters and my, one of my sons, you know, frequently. And I really enjoy that. And that's our thing. And nobody else needs to do that. No one listening to this has to feel that pressure. It's to know what you're going to choose and to be and to be at peace. It's, it's the, you know, we've all heard of FOMO, the fear of missing out. Sure. Uh, but I think we have to discover essentialists know of, 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 um, of the joy of missing out um, or, or JOMO. Right. And, and so, you know, your own essential strategy and you get at peace with that and keep investing in that rather than just trying to do everything that everyone else on social media is saying and all of our friends and acquaintances are doing, that's fine for them. I want to quietly pursue doggedly the things that I've identified myself. Really, really interesting. Let's, let's talk a little bit about pushing back and saying no, because it's something very similar to what Stephen Priestfield says in um, some, of, some of his books. He, you talk about this idea of when you say no and push back, and it shows people that your time is highly valuable. It distinguishes the professional from the amateur. So you're saying that people that don't push back are sort of, sort of a, a demonstrating, demonstrating sort of an, an amateurish sort of mentality or, or sort of mindset. Yes, with a, with a caveat. But yes, the, the you know at one end of the one end of the relationship, um, there is the, the there's the order taker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and I'm not actually knocking that there's a certain point where we begin and that's how we begin. You begin, you take the order, you go and figure out how to do things. You become valued by, by doing something that somebody is literally saying they think is useful. So, so good. That's a place to begin. But as you develop your competency and particularly as you start to think and anticipate what you can do, that's more valuable for the person you're serving, you can move into the trusted advisor role. And it's a really important sort of high, you know, hierarchy of influence. It's sure. a step from being the order taker to, 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 to moving into trusted advisor. So someone can ask you for something, even your, certainly your boss can do it. Uh, I have people that work for me that, um, uh, that, that, that are very good at this and I really value their, because they're competent, because they have experience, because they are, you know, they 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 care about what I'm really genuinely trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. They can push back and say, "Well, I think that that's a good idea, but I'm not sure that we should be taking that on right now." 
not sure that's the best use of your time. I, you know, I'm not sure that that's the best use of my time. I, what if we focus on this instead? And they're inevitably right. Um, and, 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 and so, so you earn the right to be a trusted advisor by developing competency and by understanding how to create value for the customers you serve, internal or external customers, hmm. better than they understand it. And, and, uh, and, and I mean, this is a Paul Rand did this to, to Steve Jobs. I mean, we all know Steve Jobs was good at saying no. We all heard stories about that. And, and, and that's actually probably too that was, good. It may be so. Right. Certainly in the early days, uh, he came back as a much more sophisticated leader when he returned to Apple uh, for a variety of reasons. But I still prefer a story about when somebody said no to Steve Jobs and lived to tell the tale. Sure. And it's, uh, Paul, Paul Rand was asked to do a uh, create a, uh, a, a logo and Steve was trying to explain how it will all work, how the you know you come up with a bunch of options and then uh, I'll tell you what I think. And right. I'll and he and said, he no. says, he, he says, no, he says, I'll create uh, one. <laughs> yeah. He says, I'll create one. And, but there's, there's an important phrase. Yeah. He said, he said, I will solve your problem. For I will you. solve your problem. That's really interesting. Yeah. I will solve your problem for you. So I, I'm not being dictated by, it's not your brief that you're giving me, which is actually really interesting and relevant for the agency audiences that are, that are listening to this because their clients approach them with a brief and says, look, this is our problem. We want you to solve it in this way. And, and the best agencies I've found are the ones that actually interrogate the brief and actually say, no, actually, this is the right solution for, for that problem that, that, you, that you've articulated. And in fact, you aren't even looking at the problem in the right sort of way. This is the way that you should be looking at your problem. Um, so totally. that's really totally fascinating. True. Mm. You know, when you get the brief and you just take it, you, you take the first, I mean, I, I, I work in this kind of client relationship that, that the, you know, that, that, that any agency is faced with, you're working with the client, they say X, and you must ask many questions to understand more deeply what they're really dealing with, more mm. deeply than they understand sure. in some, if not many instances, because they are also run off their feet. So the client is busy, the client is being pulled in a million directions, and then that's one of the reasons they're reaching out to you is because they're saying, they're saying, I need extra help, help. I can't seem to get this done, right. I'm, I'm, I'm drowning. And then we say, okay, fine, you're drowning. I'll just do anything you want. Fine. Sure. Is not the most sophisticated strategic, you know, uh, basis for which to build an ongoing valuable relationship. Well, you're an order taker, as you say, to, to your point. You're an order and when you become an order taker, you're a commodity. Um, and that's no way of building value into the relationship, as you've, as you've said. Um, let's, let's talk about this idea that you have of, of how we deal with so many choices, because you said we've, you know, we've never had as many choices as we have today. You know, um, it, it almost leads to sort of decision fatigue. There are so many choices that we need to make on, on a day-to-day -day basis. The more choices that we're faced with, um, the more the quality of our decisions tend to deteriorate. Is that why Silicon Valley entrepreneurs sort of wear the same clothes every day or sort of eat the same things for breakfast? So they're able to sort of reduce the amount of choices that they're able to, to make and only focus on their energies on the important choices they have to make in the day. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I've, I've come across uh, lots of entrepreneurs that, that do similar things. There's one entrepreneur who's the longest running uh, CEO uh, in Silicon Valley, and one of the things he did was that he got up at exactly the same time seven days a week. Uh, he, he, went, he, he, he left for work at exactly the same time. He brought a lunch with him 
<laughs> uh, he didn't eat out. He always brought a lunch with him. I mean, it was, he, and why? Why did he keep to this, this, uh, this discipline routines? He said, mm. he, he said it clearly to me. He said, he said because, because I wanted to reserve my energies, my mental cognitive you know, capabilities sure. for the higher creative, sure. uh, unexpected things. So you want your life to be as routinized as possible around the things that, around the, the, the relatively low value activities mm -hmm. so that you can reserve all of that creative juice, all of that brilliance for... For the most important, for the, yeah. For the creative work. Sure. And, uh, and, and so, yes, I think routinizing is, 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 a, is an important way to make execution easier and to and to protect some of that uh, decision making uh, power. Hmm. In in the agency world, we like to add more and more services to our offerings, just in case Nike calls and, and we're ready, you know, to respond to their to their brief. So we like to add, you know, whatever new services are on the marketplace. We like to sort of add that to our portfolio uh, so that we can sort of be this sort of rich, full service uh, offering to whatever client tends tend to come tends to come knocking but but you say instead of doing that well actually uh, so many other organizations that have that are successful agencies that have been on this show have said that it's so important to go niche and focus on essential offerings that they can be the best in the world at um but instead so many other agencies sort of want to be full service focusing on the trivial many instead of the the vital few is that what you mean? Is that what you're referring to when you're referring to the essentialist's life or a core tenant of the essentialist principle? It's a it's a way to apply essentialism at a kind of higher level. In the first level, you think, okay, it's just about I'm feeling busy. Here's an approach to be more selective so that I'm less overwhelmed and stressed. Okay, that's fine. It's also essentialism. This more highly selective, thoughtful way of making decisions can also apply. At the, at, the, at the agency level, it can also apply to strategy, to the way you hire, to the way you, you run your business. And, and in fact, there is an example in the book of, of an agency that, that did exactly this, which is um, Duarte. Uh, mm -hmm. Duarte um, uh, is, was running a, an agency and it was generalized and she was trying to do everything for everyone. And she saw a niche opportunity, which I think, I think was awfully clever because it was the thing that no agency wants to do. They always are asked to do it, but they, nobody enjoys it. And that's right. to create PowerPoint slides to do slide decks huh. for people. And everybody, you know, we know why we don't like that as agencies, because you do a lot of work. It gets used one time and it's throwaway. There's no sure. sense of, of, wow, I did something that's special here and, uh, and, and something that was lasting. And, and, but she saw an opportunity in that. She said, hold on, what, what if everyone's seeing it wrong? It's not about the slides. It's about storytelling and communication and out of that insight she said well what if we became the go-to place for the best the best presentations the hmm. best communication think of all the great speeches that have been given in in, in history and and, uh, and and how impactful those have been what if we were part of that and we re, re and so she became like that Duarte is is like famous arguably the best in the world at that thing now and, and, and people go to, you know, the story is told that, uh, that, that, that um, Al Gore went to them uh, when, when he was working on his, uh, his, his presentation that became, an the movie, you know, the documentary Inconvenient Truth mm -hmm. uh, illustrated. And, and many other people, the people I know of that have gone there, 
to, to get this kind of work. And so she's done TED Talks on this and books on this, and she's developed expertise and competency on storytelling and on the important hmm. how to do these presentations. And that's one illustration. Mm -hmm. You take one area, it's an area other people devalue, and she's turned it into, you know, a, literally into a masterclass. Uh, of, 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 of and it's different. It is distinctive. And here we are talking sure, about it. Sure, definitely. She's not, to be, she's not paying for this. She's, we're having this whole conversation, and, and it's because she's figured out who she is and who she isn't as an agent. Sure, definitely. And, but, it's, but it's also interesting because that leads us on to the next point around success being its own. Um, well, su success being something that you need to channel as well, because success can sort of sometimes distract us from focusing on essential things, um, because success can almost be a distraction. And, and you write about that in, in the book. How can success be a little bit of a distraction? In Nancy Duarte's case, potentially she's now this really successful um, entrepreneur that is focused on this niche around presentations and she's written some amazing books around that. How, in your opinion, can success become distracting for us? Well, I'm going to say it even bolder, which is that success is or always becomes distracting for us. Hmm. Um, and and, uh, and it, it requires one of two responses. So let's just talk about how it gets there. So we, 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 in the early days, uh, I noticed this first in Silicon Valley. I was working with lots of uh, companies there and noticed that a predictable pattern. In the early days, you're focused on something. It might even be a little bit lucky, but you find a focus. Uh, that focus is so powerful. When people have enough clarity, it generates success because everyone can put all their efforts and energies around a few things rather than everything. Uh, so clarity produces success. Success gives birth to opportunities and new options significantly more than before. And that all sounds like the right problem to have, but it does in fact turn out to be a problem if it leads to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more. Sure. And that's, that, that is what success does. It's, it's, not like, it's not like occasionally that's what happens. That's what success does. So success, according to Bill Gates, is a very poor teacher. And, and, and I completely echo that idea. Success itself can be quite insidious. Uh, and, and so it, success can become certainly a catalyst for failure. Uh, so I'm not anti-success, but I, I'm, I'm absolutely sure that it, it is something that must itself be managed. Uh, it is something itself that requires a response from us. Uh, and so we have to learn how to be successful at yeah. success. Really interesting. And, that, and you go ahead. No, I was going to say, because so much has been written about how to become successful, but not what to do once you become successful. Um, there's nothing really around that, is there? No, that, that, that's exactly right. Almost none of the literature um, delves into that question. And, uh, and uh, although Rudyard Kipling did in his, uh, in his brilliant poem, If, to his son, he said, mm. if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. And so you know, what he's saying, of course, we know that disaster is an imposter. None of us want that. We distrust disaster. We think, well, that will be just damaging to everything. Right. But we don't distrust uh, triumph. Mm. And, uh, but, but it is really predictable problem 
Uh, there's a great essay that, uh, that people can read uh, online. It's called uh, The Catastrophe of Success. It's by right. Tennessee, Tennessee Williams. And, it, uh, and it's about after he'd written the play, The Glass Menagerie, and became notable and noted everywhere he went and the effect it had. And it was his way back from that challenge, back to the craft itself, back to the work itself, the competency itself, not all the, the trappings of success, but the yeah. work itself, the essential work and the way that he could keep making a contribution. That was the way back. And, and, so, and so similarly, what we need to do is we have to keep coming back to the essential work. Not, 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 and, and the, by the way, we might not, everyone listening to this might not, on the surface think, well, oh, I'm really successful because they're bound to have many goals that they haven't achieved yet. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they're listening to this makes them successful. The fact that they are uh, literate, healthy, competent, uh, living in a, in, sure. in a democracy. Sure. These things are so rare in the history of the world. They are. And we'll talk about options. I mean, no, no, no generation has even come close, hmm. not even close to the number of opportunities and options that hmm. are, are available to us. I mean, we're not talking about a little more. It's exponentially more. Sure, it is. In every direction on any strata you want to name. So, so it doesn't matter what you're trying to learn. I mean, you th- think about the availability of knowledge 200 years ago. Uh, I'm going. I'm going back to, to make the extre- little extreme to make the point that the mm-hmm. amount of information knowledge available is so small, the the cost of books so high. It, yep. was, a, it was a sign of of being elite if you had a library, and the, and the work to get those books was was seriously hard. <clears throat> but now, I mean, it's all it's so much is available and so yeah. much for free and so much curated material too that's been been put out there for us definitely it's so overwhelming we are all falling into the undisciplined pursuit of more we're all the 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 default position is that we'll be trying to do too many things Hmm. and overwhelmed from that with decision fatigue we then go to the trivial we're exhausted we're worn out and we just spend time you know surfing junk Hmm. Uh, it's, it's, it's a paradox. It's a strange paradox. I, I can't remember who, who said it was a Silicon Valley entrepreneur that said that he'd rather be a poor person today than a, an aristocrat in the, in the Middle Ages in the 13th or 14th century because of all the benefits that we have of, of, of modern medicine, medicine, of science, of books, literature, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, but to push back on that, probably a lot of people would say that even though we have all of these benefits, Greg, of modern, of modern society, it doesn't feel as though we are any better because everything is all relative. It's all relative. You know, if our neighbor has the same access to technology and medical, um, you know, the same car and the same level of success as we do, um, we don't see... A, a huge significant in our own standards of our of our own lives because everything is relative. You know, we we compare ourselves to the people in our immediate vicinity. So even though standards have increased significantly uh, over the last two three hundred years, if not if not longer, it doesn't. F- we don't feel better, and that probably leads to its own level of kind of anxiety, really. Well, I, I mean, what you're saying, I think, is totally valid. And so it requires a response, like it requires a leadership response within us. Sure. Because, because of the trouble, the challenge of <clears throat> of abundance. 
So what's the right response in times of abundance, in times of opportunity, when we could have our joy stolen simply because we're now comparing ourselves against other people's abundance around us? You know, one principle that, that, that whose time has come, uh, it's always relevant, but has a greater relevance now is, is like serious gratitude. Uh, and, and so one of the things I do, and I do it, you know, part mental health um, uh, and part, you know, just just rather well, variety of reasons. But but I keep a journal. And one of the things that I, I you know, the structure I follow is is a gratitude uh, structure. You know, right. things I'm thankful for. I, I've kept that, you know, pretty faithfully for, you know, last last nine years but more than that so barely, probably barely missed a day in the last nine, nine really years. every day yeah. wow <clears throat> yeah and uh and it, and it they all, all most of my entries begin with sort of i'm thankful for thanks and uh, and what that means is that i was just estimating uh, quite conservatively there's uh, i have over ten thousand things i'm grateful for over these last uh, nine ten years right so Re so that's an antidote to the problem of comparison and missing the news, sure. which is which is we have so much good going on. And you can do that personally, of course, in a journal. Hmm. I recommend people do it at the, in their Monday morning meeting mm -hmm. with their team. The first thing they do. Uh, OK, what are we grateful for? What's gone right? Mm -hmm. What is going right for us? Uh, instead of jumping to just all the things that we, we don't yet have how we want them to be. And I think this is such a, in fact, the other day I was overwhelmed and I, I went to go to my journal as if to write down, you know, okay, let me just get all the stuff that's in my head out, you know, all, you know, all these things I'm trying to work on. And instead, right as I did it, the thought came to me, no, just write like you normally do, write what you're grateful for. And I mm. did that. And 20 minutes later, I was no longer overwhelmed. Hmm. That was gone. Because, you, yeah, go ahead. You know, I, I've been keeping a journal as well for the last few years. And, and one of the amazing things about it is that every now and again, I flip back a couple of years or maybe even a few months to think about what was I thinking on that day at that time a few months ago. And I go back and I read my entry. And what I was concerning myself about now, I, have, I couldn't care less about it's yeah. gone. <laughs> it's out of my mind. But at that time, a few months ago, a few years ago, it was the it was the thing that was dominating totally. my life. Um, totally. But it but it just but you know I look back at it now and it's just like why was I worrying about that? Um, but that's that's so that's one of the values. That's one of the benefits I get of, of keeping a journal. I want to riff on that because because I I haven't gone back and read my journal as much as I as I should have done. Whenever I do it, I find it really valuable. And sure. in one time that I did it, um, I was struck similar by what you're describing. And, and, and bear in mind, everything I'm writing down are things that I thought I, you know, I was, in fact, thankful for on those days. So it's already a curated list. Hmm. But, but most of it just, just passes away as very low value to me when I read back. But the things that stand out for me are, uh, uh, whenever I write with a level of specificity about something I've done with my children, some some game mm. we played, and there's some detail about it, and so that moment comes back to me, mm. and I remember it again, and then can go and share it with them again. It just happened <laughs> recently that I, that I did that, and to have them delight in that memory that they would have been lost for all of us, it it, it signals to me, um, which is at the very heart of what it means to be an essentialist that only a few things are essential 
And most of the stuff, even of the good stuff, is actually relatively speaking trivial. Hmm. And, and so it's so important that not only I invest in those things, for example, being present with my wife, Anna, with our children, it's, 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 it's enjoying it and going, this is it. This yeah. is real life. This is what's essential. Hmm. This is what you want to write about in your journal tonight. This is what in 10 years and maybe 100 years from now, if anyone cares to read back, this will be worth something uh, when the rest of it won't. So, so which parts of the essentialism sort of approach do you most struggle with, Greg? My, my, I mean, I think my big challenge is that I, I, I mean, I mentioned this earlier on. I'm, I'm so interested and fascinated by so many things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I find when people are talking, it's not hard for me to imagine Oh yeah, if, if if I did those, if, sure. I did, if I jumped into that, I think I could try and get this and get this moving. I'm, 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 I'm I think of myself as reasonably entrepreneurial, and right. uh, so that that that's that's the challenge. But here's where I've what I've learned, which I think is 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 helped me and may help others. Which is, it's not just okay; it's actually an inherent part of being an essentialist, a necessary part to explore broadly, even more broadly than a non-essentialist. So when you have these ideas, when people are sharing things, yes, explore them. Yes, ask questions. Yes, even consider things. Many, many things. Just don't commit to them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just learn about them and pause. Right. Don't go taking, go, don't sure. go signing up some contract. Don't send, suddenly spend money without thinking about it. Go committing down a new strategy just pause let it go a while see if it remains with you see if you can't i just talked to an entrepreneur recently and they had this idea and i was like wow that is such a good yeah. idea that could be so great yeah one week later when i talked to them again and listened and asked a few more questions they themselves had decided not to pursue that direction and to do something else instead really and, I thought, and i thought i thought and 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 I had had sort of the same journey, and I thought that's that's what it is. Explore broadly, very broadly. Think of the things that you know. Ask lots of questions. Uh, be interested. Be interesting. But then, when it comes to committing, use the ninety percent rule. It mm. has to be ninety percent or above essential, or really just don't go there. Really interesting. I was having a beer yesterday with with a friend who it's so interesting because I've only recently started my own business in the last 12 months. And it's only recently that it started to, to take off. And as a result of it taking off, there are more and more opportunities that are coming my way. So opportunities to speak and business opportunities that are that are that are presenting themselves. And they're all great. They all sound fantastic. And probably about sort of 12, 18 months ago, I would have killed for any one of them. But now the the challenge is well how do i choose how do i i, I th there are only so many hours in the day still and i'd love to pursue all of them but the reality is that i just can't even though they're all fantastic opportunities um so your rule of 90% it has to be 90% essential just just elaborate on that well i i had an experience um uh, a little while ago a few years ago where i had one of my goals had been you know, to, to be a faculty member at Stanford. And, and I went and helped to co-create a class there called Designing Life, essentially. And that was received uh, positively. And so 
so so an offer was made to me you know that there, there, there is a um, you know if you'd like to do this you can do this and by that point it was a year later and by that point i realized that even though it was something that sounded so great to me there were, there were other things that were bigger burning yeses inside of me there were other things more important and so i said no to something that literally one year before i had had as a goal mm. and and i think that that's what that's by by you know by by application that's what we are trying to figure out is how to increase your selectivity hmm. to meet your level of success hmm. uh, or to slightly outpace it in fact because you want to be saying no to things so that there's enough space to consider and figure out the next move the next level up and if you if you use the same criteria you had a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago, you will, it, the effect of that is that you will plateau at the level of your selectivity. And now, go. were you going to, sorry, were you going to finish the point? No, you go. Well, I, I was just going to say, do, do essentialist principles differ depending on where you are in your career? So this whole idea of sort of saying no and being very selective about what you say yes to it may be that when you're starting out and you're earlier on in your career, presumably you want to say yes to, to everything because it gives you more experience and more chance of making a success of yourself. So do the, these principles apply depending on sort of where you are in your own career and your own evolution? Well, um, yes and no, because, because here's, here's how I would describe that. So, so let's 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 take it extreme for a moment. Let's say we're talking to a high schooler, right? All right. So that's 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 early in your career, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so do you want? Do I want my? I mean, I have four children. Uh, you know. So so I do I want my oldest daughter to say yes to everything without thinking about it? Do, no. Does do, do her? Does she have more opportunity of where to spend her time than time? Yes. Yeah. So you, so what you, so even though what you're saying is, 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 is a bit more, there's more to it than that, I understand. I want her to be learning as early as possible what the big yeses are for her. Hmm. One of the things that she wants to do, she wants to, to, to be a director. She, she loves photography, she loves film, uh, um, and, she, and she finds this fascinating. So I want, I want for her to feel empowered to to pursue opportunities within that area so she can develop competency. Now, I, I mean, it's right. Once she's on a set, so she was on a corporate set a while back. She did an internship while she was still, I don't know, maybe, maybe she was 15 when she was doing it. So that's a pretty good time to be doing a little internship. Mm -hmm. internship. She's on. Now, of course, when she's there, she you want her to be willing. You don't want her to be sitting in any way arrogant sure. going, okay, I think I'm above this. No, she jumped in. That was the feedback that I got later was, was she, you know, she was there originally, okay, go get coffee kind of a role. Uh, but because she was eager, enthusiastic and willing, she had, she was involved in, in basically every aspect of the shoot. <laughs> so that's great, right? Yeah. You know, so in that sense, it's right what you're saying. You want to be game, you want to be open, mm -hmm. willing and enthusiastic. But that doesn't mean that you should be less selective and thoughtful 
about what you're committing to in the first place. Hmm. Uh, I mean, she, she read as one of her one of her assignments that she had option for writing. She's writing. She had an option. She chose because of her passion and interest. OK, I'll study Spielberg. And as she's reading and studying Spielberg's life, she has this whole journey of someone who has been, you know, explored broadly. Yes, but been incredibly focused. from a very young age going this is the competency i want to develop so i think that there's it's really never too young to get to try and explore broadly with the mindset of what what am i going to go big on Mm -hmm. what competency am i going to develop and in this way i think people can by the time they're in college by the time they're they've graduated they they might have they might have 10 times the experience of somebody else in the same the same age bracket, mm-hmm. um, and, and and so on. So you know you want to then develop and compound the advantage of having figured out the right strategic directions as early as possible. Greg, last question before we get into our favorite questions at the end of the interview that I ask all of my guests. Um, let's talk about boredom. You say it's important to be bored because it gives us time to think and to process. No one is bored anymore. <laughs> when when and where do you find time to process i, I assume journaling is, is one of them but how else do you do it yeah you're right so journaling's my is 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 my every night thing but it's also through the day i keep it with me and it's, it's a good it's such a it's like my favorite technology because it, it, of all the things it doesn't do um and, and it creates all this space i mean one of the things i i i love to do to create space is to read um i i you know i we, we have a we have a, a relatively significant library at our home and uh, and, and we um, read it, read to my children read books they they read so much they recommend books to me now that I oh, need wow. to read uh, and uh, they, they you know they they've become book pushers uh, and uh, wow. and and they and they really have they then we went through that in a very deliberate process to to reduce screen time uh, and increase uh, increase reading when they were young. And they still just absolutely just just when we go on holiday. It just happened recently mm-hmm. that uh, we were we were on vacation and and um, I didn't notice it actually because it was just normal. But somebody in line, we were waiting to get the the the, the, the car and uh, rental car, and somebody else in line said, "Are those your kids over there?" And all four of them were sitting. In reading a book each, each one were reading and and i was like yeah yeah you know and they're like wow that's so good to see them they're not on phones and, and wow. i thought yeah that, but that that isn't it doesn't happen it's not all the time like that moment that's but so if rare they have books, did you take a picture so happy i don't know if i did or not actually it's it's, it's so normal they really do read like amazing that, that it's become part of the thing and so now <laughs> it's funny they they're always bullying me to uh not bully but to read to read books that they think are terrific in the series right. that they've enjoyed and right. I really want you to read this now and so I feel this pressure to be reading <laughs> all of all of the things that they've been reading and 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 I think that I think this is this is I mean I I read recently this idea and I I feel it personally painfully too and that this this is a this was a um, it was Gordon uh, Hinckley, who's a uh, is, it was extru- incredible leader, uh, church leader, a global global figure, impact all over the world. Read well, read well, spoken. He said this. He said, "I'm appalled at everything I don't know," <laughs> and I feel that in every part of me. I'm just appalled really? at what I don't. Absolutely. Well, I'm the more and more you learn, that's the thing. That's the thing about reading. The more and more you read, is the more and more you realize you don't know. Totally true. 
Uh, I've been one of my favorite books recently has been um, is uh, John Adams, which was written uh, his terrific award-winning book uh, by David McCullough. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious read. I mean, it's sort of 800 pages biography of him or something. And 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 uh, the sort of book that when you finish, you feel a little proud of having done it. But mm-hmm. uh, but uh, in it, not only you know is the book itself interesting, but to hear how he read himself is is just is, is this is the spirit of I'm appalled at what I don't know. I mean, he and he and Jefferson were reading. Um, you know, they, they, when they weren't in office, they would read sometimes for 10 to 12 hours a day. Wow. And they're reading the original Stoics and philosophers sure. in Greek, in Latin. Wow. They're reading it in their original text because they prefer the, 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 the clarity of those words. Uh, and so, and so what, you know, an aspiration for me is to read is to read what they were reading. I, I don't aspire to read it in Greek or Latin. I, well, I do, but just I don't think it's humanly possible that, sure. I, that I would do this. But yeah. uh, but I, I do aspire to the idea of filling my mind with the kinds yeah. of insights that were filling their minds. And, really and, and then, interesting. And then and John, John Adams, his son, John Quincy Adams, he was doing the same for him. So by the time he's 16, 17 years old, he's in Europe, he's, further, he's traveled further than almost anyone alive in America at the time or anywhere huh. in 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 the world where people were traveling like we do of course now and and he was the ambassador to, to multiple countries by the time he was 30 by the time he became president of the united states he was more prepared for that role than anyone that's that's ever been in it in terms of just his knowledge of the world and his his, his understanding and his 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 depth of thought i mean this is this is this is a good thing we want leaders who have read deeply and read widely, what, what, yeah. Whatever our political persuasions, we want people sure. to be well read, uh, and and I want to be myself. Definitely, if if for no other reason, it, it just tells them that they don't have all the answers, and other people are probably smarter than them. <laughs> which is, it, it, that's, that alone which is valuable. Definitely. Well, well, let's get into our favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests, um, and I'm really interested to ask you them as well. Let's start with the reading question. This is my personally favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books. What do you read for personal and professional development? What do you, what are you reading now? What's been instrumental in getting you to where you are in your career? It's a big question. Um, yeah, uh, I, um, surprise, probably surprising answers to some of that. I mean, what am I reading now? Uh, just last night, I was reading a book uh, called Inferno by Max Hastings. It's about the Second World War mm-hmm. um, and uh, absolutely breathtaking uh, account of, uh, of of what was going on. It's it's one of the very very best books on the Second World War that's been written. Um, uh, that, that's a book I've been reading recently. Um, the, uh, another that I think is interesting. It's a, a little dry, perhaps, but it's called The Overview Effect. And this is about people who, it's accounts of, first-hand accounts of astronauts uh, and what their experience was and how particularly how it shaped their worldview for the rest of their lives hmm. uh, and, and, and how perspective-changing uh, experiences can help us to see each moment of our lives uh, you know, more, uh, more richly. 
Um, I, I enjoyed uh, so so many I could go to uh, <laughs> uh, that, that I enjoyed. I've been I've been enjoying uh, Robert Greene's book, The Laws of Human Nature. It's a well sure. well researched book, and I really enjoyed that. His books are um, phenomenal. It's terrific. It's terrific. That the science of trust is 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 a relatively heavy read, but it's it's got it's written by um, arguably the most uh, competent. Uh, authors of uh, 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 around how human relationships work, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it's it's by you know it's by John Gottman who started the Love Lab, uh, which is where they gather more data than I think probably anyone seriously in human history have gathered about how relationships work because they have everyone <laughs> videotaped for the whole time they're in this place and they have them you know they, they have they're capturing pulse heart rate. Uh, they go through a variety of experiments. They, wow. you know, they're gathering everything that's going sure. on. They've had thousands of people go through. Sure. Uh, so I, I think that's a, that's a, you know, been a terrific, uh, terrific book that I've read recently. What, what's uh, your process for choosing books? You know, I mean, I, I, I try to, I actually try to really to curate them carefully because for me, it's not, I don't just want, um, I don't just want to like read a book for the sake of having read it and to, say, to be able to drop yeah, the name. I'm the, done. The, the right. Next, uh, yeah. It, for me, a book is almost only, it's, I can only really say I've read a book if I've reread it. That's the sort of feeling I have oh, about right. books. Okay, I, interesting. I want, I, I, I want a book that I have read and reread and reread because that's the only way these ideas become a part Definitely. of you rather than just sort of a peripheral thing. Mm. Um, I, I mean, I really, a, another book I, I like and falls into that category for me is, um, it's called Becoming Steve Jobs. Huh, I haven't read um, that. Yeah, and, and, and it, it, like you and the rest of the world, because the book everyone read was the Walter Isaacson book, yeah. which I enjoyed myself. But, yeah. but the people at Apple who I've worked with anyway uh, were not as in favor of that book as they were about um, about becoming Steve Jobs, they Why? felt that, well. They felt that the Walter Isaacson biography um, sort of stereotyped Steve mm. um, into kind of the, the the first version of him. So there was a version of him, right? When he's the, that's the version that got fired, and, and you probably only get fired, maybe not always, but you probably get fired because you you didn't you weren't getting you didn't have sure. your stuff together, right? Sure. And so then he comes back, but it was 10 years later that he right. came back. 10 years a long himself. time in the He'd matured, he'd matured, right, exactly. Well, well, what had actually happened in that 10 years, two big things had happened. One, mm-hmm. uh, he'd spent 10 years at Pixar seeing and learning a completely different decision-making model than what had been modeled for him elsewhere. Hmm. Very deeply collaborative. Everything was together. We're going to wrestle it, we're going to debate it, but we're doing it together. And then the second thing that happened to him formatively was uh, was he got married and had a family. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I mean, anyone who's been married and had a family knows how much it can Transformative. change. Transformative, right. You. So by the time he gets back to, to, to Apple the second time around, he has actually evolved as a human, as a leader. He still had some of the first weaknesses within him. And that was mm-hmm. the stuff that the media carried. But actually, he was himself... Of a, a very different leader, and that's what Johnny Ive, that's uh, Tim Cook, they participated 
uh, in uh, in the Becoming Steve Jobs book. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and they, they made this simple observation, which is like, you don't do the best work of your life for a jerk. Hmm. That, that isn't what happens. So they did their best work of their lives for Steve Jobs. So why? And, uh, and this is a much richer question, uh, than just going, oh, okay, I guess, I guess if you want great results, you just have to be a jerk and that's sure. how you get there. Uh, no, yes, be selective. Yes, be thoughtful. Um, you know, yes, be an essentialist. Steve pulled out, you know, when he came back to, to, to Apple, the, that executive team reduced the products from 330 products to 10. You know, that's yeah. an unbelievable sure. message. Reduction. Yeah, it, it really uh, is. But, but he was also, that's also the same leader that hired one of the best executive teams in any company anywhere. So you don't build incredibly strong capable capability around you if if you don't value a collaborative collective team working together, debating decisions together. Hmm. Uh, and and so there's a lot more to that story, and I think that's yeah counted well in that book. Some fantastic books there. Thank you very much for sharing them. They're all ad added to my very long Amazon reading list. Um, <laughs> what's the most interesting thing people don't know about your background? Oh, I mean, I suppose one thing people don't know about my background is any of my uh, ancestry. And I think that's um, I think that's true for each of us as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have uh, I have a great and growing uh, interest and hunger in in genealogy and in in my own family history. And, mm -hmm. and in, so my so my, one of my grandfathers was uh, was a magician. Uh, was hmm. on stage from like the time he was nine. He was a he was a, a clown, literally, uh, you know, with a, a personality to go with it. Wow. He, he was uh, it was he, from a long line of people that were that were that were on stage and uh, and and so that you know that's this whole part, you know, it's a portion of who I am sure. today, and uh, and and the same for uh, you know. The, Different stories, of course, but for every person listening uh, right now, they have been shaped by people they probably know very little about. Uh, so most people cannot name the first and last name of their eight great-grandparents, as an illustration. Very good point. N notwithstanding, the language they speak, the place they live is almost certainly owed to these people they can't even name huh. and that's just the that's just the surface stuff that's not even necessarily the most important contribution those people made sure then there's all the cultural stuff all sure. the unspoken stuff all the who we are and what we struggle with and what we're good at and the patterns of our lives right. that don't work so much of that has its roots in in people we've already forgotten and, so and if i if i might just say so the, 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 i can go just the other direction on this for a moment which is that a hundred years from now our own great grandparents grandchildren <laughs> God. Yeah. will will themselves be yeah. old and they will probably not remember our names depressing but <laughs> is it because here's the other part of the, the story is just like our great grandparents have impacted us hmm. uh we impact them and this is the principle is impact outlasts memory. 
So what it actually means is that this moment, right, you and I here are talking in this moment, this now, and in this moment, we have this incredibly powerful choice before us, which is what to invest in right now. Hmm. And to know with a higher level of consciousness that this will affect people for 100 years and 200 years and more. And it helps us, I think, to see the the opportunity, an egoless version of now. Because hmm. they won't remember us fine, sure. but we still impact them. So with responsibility and hopefully without too much worrying about ourselves, we can make better choices, more essential choices that can last for a long, long time. Beautifully said. Last couple of questions before I let you go. I, I know that I'm taking up a lot of your time, but uh, last couple of questions. In the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors, or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Um, I, I, I play tennis as, as, as often as I can. That's my, my go-to exercise. Mm -hmm. That's an added thing, and I chose it because it's something that I can play into, you know, yeah, probably possibly into sort of 80s and beyond. Like people, mm -hmm. I see people doing this and I can do it with my family and extended family. So that's uh, that's that's one additive thing. Um, I, I for a year removed sugar completely, 100 hmm. percent removed it from my diet. That was a good experience. What did that do to you? But my, my primary benefit was that I was I just wasn't sick for the whole huh. year. Huh. Uh, I, I think sugar has a, has, a, has a strong correlation with weakening our uh, immune system. Um, I, those are the two that come to mind. Great. And my final question, Greg, what do you know about living an essentialist life today that you wish you knew when you first started writing the book? Um, the, 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 the most important thing I know now that I didn't know then um, is that it's easier than the non-essentialist life. Uh, somebody once said to me after they read Essentialism, they said, and they meant, they didn't mean it in a negative way. They said, oh, Essentialism should come with a warning. This will be the hardest thing that you will ever do. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I thought, thought they were right. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's right. This is so much harder than the other, the alternative. Mm -hmm. And now I am convinced it's the opposite. What, 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 what I think is still often true is that the systems we have incentivize us to do what matters less. Um, so the systems are poorly built. But if you, re if you create the right systems, uh, essentialism is so much easier hmm. than non-essentialism. Non-essentialism is such a bear, such a beast, such a burden uh, of a way of living. If you have to do everything everyone else thinks you ought to be doing, if you have to do everything that other people are doing just to compete, sure. compare, to, to keep up with them, and all of that junk, it's such an awful way of living. It's so hard. It really on is. On our psyche, on our schedules, mm -hmm. uh, on our uh, sanity. And, uh, and so, yeah, essentialism is, is it's not easy, but it's so much easier. Greg, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. We have been speaking with Greg McEwen. He is the author of Essentialism. We would be unable to do this show without our very own innovators. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Mageki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Dot Innovate from the Agency Dealmasters Podcast Network. <laughs>